quantum computing fundamentally is the best way to process information based on the laws of physics as we know them. I had constructed what I thought of as the generalization of the universal Turing machine. Can an astonishingly powerful new realm of computation be found within the quantum world? Will researchers ever realize the goal of what they call quantum supremacy? And what would it mean for our society if they did? From its fundamental building blocks to the ultimate goal of a truly universal quantum computer, join me, Oxford Professor of Philosophy Peter Millikan, as I explore this and many other questions on the Future Makers podcast. Available today from wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast, and I have uh, Dr. Jeffrey A. Morgan. He's a cardiac surgeon, performs bypass surgery, mitral and aortic valve surgery, uh, and installation of heart pumps called LVADs and heart transplants. He's also the chief medical officer for BioLife 4D. So, uh, Dr. Morgan, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so tell me about your, your work with the heart. Uh, what First of all, why do you decide to uh, have you decided to focus on the heart, and what are some of the uh, the things that you do? Sure, sure. So, <clears throat> I'd say from the first year of medical school, I wanted to become a heart doctor, and got interested in the heart, and in particular heart failure. Uh, I went to go see a heart surgery during my first summer of medical school, and was just really sold on the concept of repairing heart valves and doing bypass surgery and for patients with advanced heart failure, uh, doing heart transplantations. It's really a great field. And, you know, I feel very fortunate each day to go to work and be able to take care of uh, patients and make a difference in their lives. That's great. So what's, um, what are some of the novel or, uh, you know, interesting things that you're working on recently? Well, some of the things I've been working on recently are relating to uh, replacements for the heart, so left ventricular assist devices, so-called LVADs, and uh, alternatives to heart transplantation. Um, what an LVAD is, it's, uh, it's, an, uh, it's a pump, basically, that goes into the heart to help a failing heart. Patients with advanced heart failure whose hearts are just simply not working well, and they have trouble uh with maintaining their daily lives they just can't do the activities they once were able to do they get very short of breath they can't sleep at night they get fatigued um they don't have any energy 
and they often get admitted to the hospital uh, with heart failure. Uh, the, the point of these pumps is to is to keep them out of the hospital, is to be able to establish normal or close to normal amount of blood flow to the rest of their body, to their other organs, to uh, get them back to the lifestyle that they once had before they developed heart failure. Uh, the work I do with the BioLife 4D is is really really exciting. Uh, I was working on uh, bioprinting a heart, um, which would take the place of heart transplantation. Um, heart transplantation, in many ways, is is really trading one disease for another. You know, you basically remove the heart that's not working, you put in a new heart, but patients have all sorts of other problems relating to heart transplants and being on anti-rejection medications. Uh, they have a high incidence of infection because their immune system is shut down. They have rejection and the heart only lasts about eight, 10 years. And, and so it's really not a great solution uh, for, for the problem. Why does the heart only last uh, eight to 10 years? Well, you know, the, the issue is that you're, you're putting a heart from another human being into someone. And so there are compatibility issues, despite us trying uh, to match them as well as we can based on blood type, size, um, and other factors, you know, it's not a perfect match. And so the body rejects it. And um, chronic rejection is, is one of the main causes for the arteries of the heart becoming uh, blocked over time. And that leads to the heart not working. And eventually, you know, most patients get about about 10 years, sometimes longer from heart transplantation. But, you know, it really just can't meet the needs of the population. And, uh, you know, even if we had, um, even if we uh, uh, had better results with heart transplants, the problem is we only can do uh, a little over 2,000 when about 200,000 people need heart transplants. So it just really doesn't answer uh, the demand or the need. What about uh, artificial hearts? Have, we, uh, have any been made that are at work for any length of time? You know, what are those like? Yeah, so the, the artificial hearts, you know, there's one FDA-approved artificial heart called Syncardia, and um, it, it is a good therapy for patients who need it. It's, it's the only approved therapy, but um, it has a lot of problems associated with it. Uh, the, it's, you know, af after all, it's a machine, um, and there are blood clots that form in the pump. Um, it also gets infected because it's a good piece of hardware in the heart. Um, it also has a certain instance of device malfunction where it just, you know, simply doesn't work well. So um, it's not the answer for people um, right right now. It's the only answer, but we really need to do better. Um, and uh, there are certain technologies and new therapies that are being considered and are being developed and hopefully just a few years away. So are you attempting to uh, recreate the entire heart or just uh, certain functions of it? You know, maybe like an organoid type thing or just part of the heart or one chamber? Or... Yeah, we're attempting to recreate the entire heart. You know, what BioLife is trying to do, our goal that is, is to be able to bioprint an entire heart. Uh, along the way, there are going to be some victories of bioprinting just a valve, like a mitral valve or an aortic valve 
or maybe even the aorta or maybe even the coronary arteries um, to help isolated patients who have those types of isolated problems with a valve or a coronary artery. But the long-term goal is to be able to bioprint an entire heart and to be able to basically do what heart transplantation does today is to replace someone's heart. Well, what's, when people have heart failure, what are the most common mechanisms of heart failure? What, what is failing? Is it, you know, uh, the valves? Is it the cardiac muscle dying? I mean, what, you know, have we identified like a Pareto of if you only could make part of a heart, what would be the most useful for a start? Yeah, I mean, usually it's a muscle problem. It's uh, the fact that the heart pump is not working well. Um, it can be due initially to a valve problem or it can be due initially to blockages um, in the arteries uh, that initially cause the problem. Um, but, you know, ultimately the final road is the same, and that is that the heart is not pumping effectively. Its pumping function has been significantly reduced. The blood backs up in the lungs. Um, and, you know, these patients are just absolutely miserable. You know, they have a very, very challenging life. They feel terrible. And um, their mortality is very, very high. So patients with advanced heart failure um, have a uh, one-year mortality of, of about 90%, which is just, you know, really, really unfortunate. So basically all of these patients, unfortunately, are dead at about a year and a half, two years. So we really, really need to do better, I think, as a field. We need to um, we need to be able to provide these patients with a better therapy, uh, a heart replacement therapy that's better than what we can do today. I mean, today, the options are really only the syncardia and heart transplant. And each of those is really fraught with many uh, downsides. Would it be easier to try to emulate some of the functionality of the heart, or is it easier for some reason to just do an entirely new one, you know, to, to grow one from scratch and make an entire heart? Yeah, I mean, what the LVAD does is it tries to emulate the left ventricle, and it helps, you know, it serves as a left ventricle, but, you know, Sometimes it's not enough. You know, sometimes the right side of the heart has a problem with it, too. And when the right side of the heart has a problem with it, you know, the only other therapy is, that's going to work is a totally implantable heart or a heart transplant. Um, so, you know, a lot of times it just depends on what's going on with the right side of the heart. Um, you know, the valves, the valves we can uh, we can address. Um, you know, it's an issue of really the right side of the heart, which we can't address other than with an implantable total artificial heart. So what are, what are some of the mechanisms of rejection, you know, for, um, so you have to put the person on, on immunosuppressive drugs, even if you did successfully, you know, create a new one from scratch. But actually, would you, if you're able to create one from scratch, is there any matching that we could do with a, uh, with a brand new printed heart that uh, couldn't be done with a transplant? Yeah, I mean, you know, the advantages of a of a bioprinted heart uh, are numerous. Um, you know, to be able to take one and have it right away and have it created from the patient's own cells would just be a huge, huge uh, step forward. Um, 
you know, first of all, in terms of availability, it would it would drastically improve things. You know, so right now, patients when they get on the heart transplant list, you know, some programs uh, you can be waiting a year and a half uh, to get a heart transplant, and that's just you know, too long for many people. Uh, a lot of people die waiting on the heart transplant list. So to be able to recreate one um, using a patient's own cells and give it to them right away, that's, you know, in and of itself a huge advantage. Um, you know, the other major advantage of a bioprinted heart would be um, the rejection issue. Because it's a patient's own cells and tissue, they wouldn't reject it, and so they wouldn't need to be on the anti-rejection medications, which would mean that they wouldn't be immunosuppressed. They wouldn't have this very, very high incidence of infections like we see now with transplant patients. Um, and because they don't have the rejection, they wouldn't have the coronary artery disease that develops so rapidly um, in patients uh, with heart transplants because of the rejection. So. You know, there would be many, many benefits, um, but it's a it's a big project. You know, it's a tall order, and um, uh, this is a field that is really just getting started, or just in the last few years, with uh, with the goal of being able to bio create organs. And uh, you know, our goal is to create a new heart, which would really help you know potentially hundreds of thousands of patients uh, per year by uh, uh, by taking these folks with end-stage heart failure who right now don't really have a good answer. You know, transplant can't really meet the needs of the population. And the mechanical heart, the syncardia, is fraught with all sorts of mechanical and structural and long-term problems. Um, so there would be a huge, huge uh, clinical benefit, you know, if we were, in fact, successful in being able to develop uh, the artificial heart. Uh, that we have in mind, you know, but it's going to be a staged development with, uh, uh, you know, first the development of, like I mentioned, valves. We're also working on a mini heart, which um, might have other applications for testing of different drugs in a, you know, sort of a heart environment um, to look at the cardiac effects of different drugs, but, you know, would really represent a, a major leap forward and, um, um, victory, if in fact we can we can develop that. But uh, you know, this is a really this is really a long term project, and um, you know, we have our eye on the prize, on the goal, so to speak, which is to really bioprint a full heart. I don't know if this is um, ridiculous, but I know with kidney transplants, they'll leave the kidneys in the person and just add one. Would it be possible yeah. to have two segments of? You know, uh, a transplant heart, one that's, you know, upstream of the current, you know, uh, left side, one that's downstream, the right side, or vice versa, and leave the existing heart in place and just add these two halves of a heart upstream and downstream yeah, of it. Would that have any benefit? That's a great question. Um, you know, there is such a concept, actually, in heart transplantation, just as you're describing exactly like that, which is called a heterotopic heart transplant. Um, it's very, very rarely done today. Most of the vast majority of heart transplants are what we call orthotopic heart transplant, which is where we take out the heart and replace it. But what you're describing um, has been done. Um, it, uh, you know, it's generally reserved for a very, very small percentage of cases um, 
because uh, there are benefits in doing it in an orthotopic fashion and replacing the heart, taking it out and putting the new one uh, in, in that particular location. Well, maybe not even a whole half of the heart, but just to get boost. Their, um, I don't know. You know, like <laughs> wireless routers have boosters. I mean, would there be a, uh, is there a pump booster that could be put in in a given artery to assist the heart? Or in, when the heart's ejecting, you know, the oxygenated blood, is there a way to boost it and assist it? Yeah, it's a good, you know, it's a good question, you know, and that's what sort of these LVADs are, is that it, you know, it boosts one part of the heart, you know, the left ventricle. It, um, you know, the blood is essentially rerouted, you know, instead of going from the left atrium to the left ventricle and out to the aorta and relying on the pump function of the heart, this plugs into the left ventricle, takes a lot of that blood, sends it through the pump instead, and the pump kind of boosts it out or sends it out, if you will, to the um, aorta through a graft. So, um, you know, we do we do sort of use that mechanism now with these LVADs to um, we don't actually replace any part of the heart. We, we, leave, we leave the heart in place and we connect this machine or pump. Um, you know, but the problem is that LVADs have a downside. Um, you know, as good as they are and they help many, many people each year, the problem is that it has a power cord that goes through the skin um, and needs to be connected to batteries. The battery pack needs to be changed. Every six hours or so, you know, patients are constantly reminded about the need to recharge and the fact that they're dependent on a machine. Um, we don't have a fully implantable LVAD right now. There are companies that are working on that with wireless rechargeable technology that can charge it through the skin, but we don't have that right now. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, the question is, you know, a very good one is, you know, can we can we leave in or can we create this booster? Uh, you know, and right now the closest thing that we have to that is an LVAD. Although again, the LVAD really, um, you know, hasn't been the full answer for, for these patients just because of the adverse event profile or complications that's, that are associated with it. Is there any way to do um, like a dialysis for the heart? You know, let's say you put in a, you know, a transplant in the last eight to 10 years, but, you know, maybe part of the mechanism for failure is that, you know, fibrous growths obscure the vessels and clog up the heart. Is there a way, you know, once a month, let's say, for a patient to go and have their blood circulated through a machine and cleaned in such a way that it would extend the life of that heart somehow? Uh, you know, I'll tell you, for the kidneys, that works because, you know, if you think about it, the kidneys, the, their main purpose is to really filter the blood, take out the bad stuff, um, and you can do that, you can simulate that by putting someone on dialysis. Um, you know, the heart's different in that it's a pump, and, um, you know, once that pump stops working, um, you know, you really need to uh, either change the pump out or, um, you know, put a put a booster in, so-called LVAD. Now, you know, one thing we do kind of do is um, there are certain medications that patients will sometimes come in for, uh, inotropes, as we call them, which uh, help the heart's function 
Um, and some of those can last two weeks or so. So patients could come in for certain inotropic therapies like milrinone, for example, have that run um, for a few hours into the intravenous portion, leave the hospital, and that might be good for a couple of weeks because the half-life of milrinone, it can take a while until it exits the system. But those types of therapies are not really conventional at this point. So would it be useful to further or better understand the mechanisms of rejection, you know, with heart transplants? You know, even even if you're able to build a heart from the person's own cells, would there still be any rejection? And I don't know, is, is there any learnings from there? Yeah, there's a lot to be learned there for sure uh, in terms of the mechanisms for rejection. And, uh, you know, a lot of science and research has been done around this area um and uh you know what it really seems to be at this point is um incompatibility issues and um you know there have been a lot of different attempts at making hearts and other organs more compatible between the donor and the recipient um looking at different factors in the blood that perhaps could be used uh to create compatibility um but uh you know, with such a limited donor supply, um, you know, it becomes an issue of uh, risk-reward ratio. And, you know, when you have a patient who is otherwise going to die without this heart transplant, um, even though there's some compatibility issues on a relatively minor level, um, in the short term, uh, it's going to really benefit the patient. And it's going to give them 5, 10, 12 years um, but the chronic rejection is really what ultimately uh, leads to the failure of the organ. But, you know, uh, you know, going back to your question, absolutely. You know, more work needs to be done in the field in terms of understanding rejection, what we can do differently, are there medications. You know, there haven't been any major breakthroughs in immunosuppression medications in years. Cyclosporin um, was a big breakthrough. There have been, you know, some other medications that have really come along and helped. But overall, if you look at the survival for heart transplants, it hasn't really changed very much uh, over the last few decades. It really has remained around median survival of around 10 to 12 years. So um, we are in need of more research to understand rejection and better treatments uh, for preventing rejection. No, I haven't asked you. What are the difficulties in um, creating a, a whole heart de novo? Is it the connective tissue? Is it, uh, I mean, what is it about uh, creating a heart that's difficult? Yeah, so, you know, this field is really just starting. Um, you know, the whole bioprinting field of bioprinting organs is a very young field, and it's likely going to really have significant milestones, accomplishments, and evolve quite a bit in the next, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. But you know, the challenges are creating four chambers, creating four valves, creating a automated pumping mechanism, creating electrical synchronization like we have now with the sinoatrial node and um, uh, the conduction fibers and the bundle of hiss and how it spreads to the different ventricles and how there's coordinated synchronized contraction, um, how the impulse propagates uh, through the different parts. Uh, of the heart um, and, you know, connecting the, the, the major vessels, the aorta, the pulmonary artery, the inflow from the venous system, 
Um, so there are a lot of complex structural, anatomical, physiological uh, barriers and challenges that need to be uh, worked out. And now that's not to say they can't be overcome, um, but uh, you know it takes a team of people and a really a multidisciplinary um, team of people that uh, can work together um, and uh, be able to address a lot of these different individual challenges. This may be a stupid question, but does the heart have to have four chambers? Can it only have two or three? And are there other organisms that, you know, the way their heart functions, uh, maybe it's less complicated morphologically, but it still would work for a person? Well, yeah, you know, great question. You know, the, the issue is that one of the sides of the heart pumps to the lungs, the other side of the heart pumps to the body. Um, the systemic body, so all the organ systems. Um, and each of those sides, so to speak, has both a pumping chamber and a reservoir chamber, if you will. So each one has an atria and a ventricle. Um, you know, and so you definitely need those two different sides, one pumping so-called blue blood or deoxygenated blood that goes to the lungs to get oxygenated and one that pumps the oxygenated blood to the rest of the body. And, you know, you really, you know, need sort of two different chambers for each of those functions. So a reservoir one and a pumping one. And you also don't want blood regurgitating um, across one chamber to the other. You want it to be uh, very intentional. And so that, you know, creates a system where you need four chambers and four valves. Um, and and so it gets it gets kind of complicated. And... Um, you know, again, just a lot of challenges that we're just really beginning to understand now. And, um, you know, I think that's really the first step in, in being able to overcome those challenges and hopefully be able to bioprint uh, a heart that, um, you know, achieves achieves our goals. So what has been accomplished so far? What has been printed and has anything been printed that's been implanted that's worked from the person's own cells? Yeah, so BioLife4D has been able to bioprint cardiac patches, um, which has been a real breakthrough. Um, the ability to print uh, cells um, and to uh, and to have these patches being made um, has been a real breakthrough. Uh, also, we're pretty close to the mini heart, which will be a real breakthrough. And in uh, simultaneously, BioLife4D is working on. Uh, being able to print valves and being able to print blood vessels. And so, you know, there are many projects that are going on all at the same time because uh, in order to bioprint a full heart, I think we're going to need to be able to achieve a lot of individual goals along the way. So we'll be able to need to print a mitral valve, an aortic valve, uh, a left coronary artery, a right coronary artery, the whole coronary tree. You know, they're going to need to be a lot of milestones and in individual printing in order to really make the heart come together as a unit. Why would a mini heart have any success? What's what's different about it besides being small? Well, you know, the issue for a mini heart, one of the advantages or one of the useful mechanisms uh, for the mini heart is going to be actually testing drugs um, and to look at cardiac toxicity and cardiac physiology. And what I mean by that is uh, right now, pharmaceutical companies spend an enormous amount of money uh, doing clinical trials and before the clinical trials, animal trials, 
uh, and experiments looking at um, uh, side effects or even the primary effects of a drug on the heart. If we can create an environment for a biopharmaceutical company to be able to test the drug without going through the very expensive animal studies, that would be very, very beneficial, not just from a financial point of view, but also expediting uh, drugs through the pipeline uh, and also to be able to more accurately simulate cardiac conditions with this type of mini heart. Um, and basically what it does is it enables the uh, pharmaceutical company to really see exactly what happens to the heart with this drug. Um, you know, rather than really needing to sacrifice an animal, the cost and, you know, the ethical issues associated with that, to be able to directly simulate cardiac conditions, um, the bioheart would be advantageous. And also just in terms of, you know, taking us closer to the next step of being able to actually bioprint a full heart, if we can do a mini heart, um, that would uh, represent a significant milestone. If you look at embryological development, what, is, what happens to the heart? Does it start out as like a little mini heart and just grow bigger and grow radially or circumferentially outward? Or does it morphologically look different as it develops? It's more of the latter. You know, it morphologically looks different. You know, there are different parts of the heart that get formed at different periods of time. So, for example, the septum, the ventricular septum between uh, the two ventricles or the atrial septum or the actual valve itself or the conduction tissue, all these happen at different time periods. So, um, you know, the heart is built, you know, sort of over over time. Um, yeah, I just didn't know but, if that would uh, give any clues on how to, how to create one from scratch. If you follow the embryological development pathway or if we're following different pathways that would work better or worse. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. You know, we... Um, you know, we haven't really thought about coordinating the embryology and the sequence from embryology to the actual bioprinted heart, but you know, I wonder if that's something that we should think about. I guess there's a reason for it, so maybe something to at least look at. You know? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. Something to think about for sure. Well, very good. Well, I appreciate coming on the podcast. What, what do you project may happen in the next uh, five years and then maybe in the next 15 or 20 well, you know, I hope that in the next five years we'll have a bioprinted heart. I hope that we'll be able to work out all the challenges and five years from now when we have a patient with heart failure, we'll be able to actually bioprint a heart. You know, we'll be able to take uh, cells and formulate uh, chambers and really produce a heart and just be able to put it into patients who who need uh, heart transplants. Um you know, I think it's going to become more and more sophisticated over time. Um, I think uh, uh, the overall expected function and longevity of the bioprinted organ is going to increase over time. Um, and, uh, you know, again, it's a very exciting field. I think there are a lot of unknowns right now. And, um, you know, we're just happy to be part of that process. Well, very good. Well, Dr. Morgan, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. It's been super interesting. No, thank you so much. Really, this has been great, um, and it's been a great opportunity. Thanks. Thanks a lot. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, 
stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.